crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigall. Thank you very much for joining me today, July 25th. This is a podcast that we also put on YouTube, so there is a video attached to it. And today we will be playing a little video that was put together by the Israeli Antiquities Authority in collaboration probably with the City of David uh, Foundation regarding a discovery that took place or was released to the public just this past uh, in the past two weeks. And I'll also be talking about another discovery related uh, to certain animal bones that were found in Jerusalem from the biblical period as well. Uh, before I get to that, I just want to update you on what I've been doing over the past couple of weeks. I did get to spend uh, some days out at the excavation site of Kirbet Arai. This is right on the border territory, let's say, where the Philistines and the Israelites were during the time of King David. This site has been excavated this year and previous years by uh, Professor Yossi Garfinkel, Saar Ganor of the IAA, uh, Mr. Garfinkel, Professor Garfinkel of Hebrew University. There's also another couple of, of uh, well, they collaborate with some other universities. However, this year, because of coronavirus, it was just Hebrew University and students of Hebrew University that were out at the site, as well as a couple of volunteers such as myself. And you will recall, if you're a regular of this program, the interview I took with uh, Professor Garfinkel two weeks ago about the discovery of the Yerubal inscription. Yerubal or Jerubal being the other name for Gideon, one of the most famous biblical judges recorded there in Judges chapter 6 through 9, that account. And after I did that interview, that was the first day I was there, I got to excavate alongside some Hebrew University students, first and second year students uh, in the ground. And this was uh, just a really great time uh, for me. I, I, I felt it actually after a couple of days. I haven't been bent over like that, uh, working like that for, for a while. Um, however, because uh, typically, typically uh, you don't get to excavate uh, in the dirt all the time. Uh, if you're on a dig site for the last few seasons that I've done here in Jerusalem uh, as a supervisor, and so you're mainly walking around and making sure nobody's destroying anything and uh, making sure that everything's recorded correctly and making sure the, let's say the director, when they come in and they want to change things or rip out that or do this, that everything is, is photographed or um, that you understand basically what's going on. And so you do very little actual excavating if you're a supervisor on the site. But if you're like me, uh, the last week or so, it was just a wonderful opportunity to get in there and dig uh, in the dirt, find walls uh, from the biblical period. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the discoveries, their discoveries that they're making out there, but they are significant. And I'm sure there will be uh, news that comes from it. Uh, eventually as well. But it was wonderful to get in there and, and rub shoulders with some of these young uh, Hebrew University students. Uh, the way it works, it seems, based on my conversations with them, is that Hebrew University, uh, if you're studying archaeology, you kind of have a similar course load, uh, all the archaeology students for their first uh, first year. And then I think it's the second or third where they actually go ahead and, and specialize into a period. And you can pick the prehistoric period, you can pick the classical period, you can pick the period of the Bible. And what was 
somewhat surprising to me was to see that there are only, there are lots of them. Well, there's a, let's say there, there wasn't as many taking the biblical period or deciding to specialize in the biblical period as I would have hoped. I mean, if you're excavating in Israel, uh, what is the most important period in terms of its impact on the history of the world? Would you talk about the prehistoric period? Probably not. Would you talk about the classical period? Probably not. Although that they are important. I'm not, not saying they're not important. But in terms of the impact that this area had on the worldwide culture as we know it today, 3,000 years or 2,000 and a half years, uh, 2,500 years removed from that time, you'd be talking about studying the biblical period. That's had the most weight and impact on the world. And yet here you have Hebrew University, which is largely, let's say, the beacon or the remaining beacon in, in Israeli academia. There, there are a couple other universities as well, but I'd say out of the big two of Tel Aviv University and, and, and um, Hebrew University, you've got Hebrew University that leans towards the Bible being an accurate historical source going back 3,000 years, and Tel Aviv University swinging the other direction, um, <clears throat> saying that it is an inaccurate biblical, an inaccurate sort going, source going back 3,000 years. And yet, here at Hebrew University, amongst the freshman class, sophomore class, there aren't that many that are choosing to, to study that uh, or go and specialize in that history. And I asked, why is that? I mean, there was one, one person that wanted to study the classical period, and that's, that's, I'm not against that. But I wanted to know, well, why not study? You're in the land of the Bible. Why not study the period of the Bible? And they said they just didn't want to go there. They don't want to go there. They don't want to be part of this ongoing debate between the two schools of Tel Aviv and, and Hebrew University. They want to just be an archaeologist, dig in the dirt, find amazing things, see how it impacted history and so on. But they just don't want to touch the biblical period because they see it as being a minefield. That if they're going to be an archaeologist and they're working inside the biblical period, that their discoveries are going to be tainted. Or their, let's say their interpretation of the discoveries is going to be tainted based on the opinion uh, or based on the place in which they are from, the university in which they are from. And, and it is a sorry state of a science such as archaeology, and some will debate whether it's a science or not, but nevertheless, let's call it a science for now. It's a sorry state in Israeli archaeology where you can know, kind of, uh, or at least have an inkling or, or a pretty good uh, perspective or a pretty good idea of what the, what the interpretation of an archaeological dig is or an archaeological discovery is going to be based on what university is digging the site. And science doesn't work that way. Science shouldn't work that way. Science should work where you dig it, you date it, and you interpret it based on and based in conjunction with the other discoveries from that period and also the historical sources from that period. And yet, that is not what happens. Uh, often, there is, there, is a, 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 um, there is a proclivity among certain scholars to use their discoveries to fulfill or provide proof for preconceived uh, notions, for preconceived theories against biblical accuracy. And even talking to one of these Hebrew University students, I was amazed to see how opinionated 
he was against the historicity of King David as an individual at such a young age, based on what he would see as, as an absence of evidence, which 101 does not describe or is not used as proof, should not be used as proof against a certain, uh, against the existence of something. And yet, here we were debating the veracity of the Teldan Steely and whether it actually proved that David was a real individual or not. And I just advised him and I said, well, just wait a few years before you really do lock in your preconceived ideas. I mean, if you're still young, if you're still 21, 22, might be good to give it a few years before you lock into what you think is right or wrong uh, re- relating to this, relating to this period. And so it was, it was a little bit, I would say the team itself was fantastic, a wonderful team of workers from Hebrew University. Uh, however, I would say that um, the fact that this is the, the, the bastion for upholding, uh, you know, archaeological method that would support the Bible, or at least being not biased against the Bible, let's put it that way, They're, Hebrew University is hardly some biblical maximalist uh, institution any longer. Um, and they were good workers, but but if that's if that's where the state of Israeli archaeology right now, it's pretty dangerous in terms of the 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 let's say if time goes on for twenty years, these are the doctors and the professors of tomorrow, and they're not coming into it with an understanding of the biblical narrative itself. What does the Bible actually say? But they are coming into it really looking twice. Uh, or let's say looking sideways at the Bible as being an accurate source, when it is the best source that we have for relating archaeological finds or correlating and, and understanding the stones and the walls that are excavated, a study of the, of the Bible as a historical geographic document for this period seems like it would be one of the most important things uh, to take place. And yet, um, just viewing the way that Saar Ganor, the, the IAA um, representative, co-director of this excavation, he pulled together some of the students at the end of the dig and kind of explained and kind of explained the context of where this site is in relation to Judah and the Philistines and what they're discovering. And that little five-minute chat, the Hebrew University students, it seemed, were blown away by it. And I came away by, from that just watching it thinking, how come they haven't learned this? in the past year or two about biblical geography, geography of the 12th, 11th, 10th century of what the Bible says, um, because then they would have a far clearer picture of what they're doing out there and the purpose of it. And, and at least um, what the, whether they should be surprised or not about what they find um, in excavating. However, I mean, this has been the trajectory of, of Israeli archaeology for some time. It's becoming increasingly unpopular to be an archaeologist in Israel and study at Hebrew University. I don't know how many students they have, maybe 12, 20 as part of the freshman class. I think 25 years ago, they probably had 70 students as part of the freshman class. I mean, this is Israel. This is biblical archaeology. This is Hebrew University. And uh, the, just the movement away from uh, the, the upholding the Bible and using archaeology not to confirm the Bible, but just to relate it to the Bible. You can't even do that barely unless you're, you're, you're claiming that the Bible's accurate uh, inside academia today. Now, there are a few strong voices 
there that that still would um, show how that what their discoveries really do enlighten or or uh, correlate to the biblical text. But that number is getting smaller and smaller, and I wonder whether the the study of archaeology is equipping the next generation of archaeologists with just the knowledge of biblical geography, biblical history, to even be able to make those connection points uh, to the Bible in the future. I don't want to knock the people themselves. I think they, they were just a wonderfully welcoming group and a hardworking group as well. Uh, however, I, I, it seems like there's plenty of room uh, for more study of the Bible as being a historical document and being the critical source document to understand uh, archaeology and the land of the Bible. So these couple of stories kind of follow on from that. And the first one I'd like to cover relates to a piglet that was found in Jerusalem. Of course, it's very, uh, it's, it's well known about the kosher laws detailed in the Bible, about what foods uh, the, the Israelites were meant to eat and what foods the Israelites weren't meant to eat. And yet here we have Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and this excavation, I believe it's around the 8th century, uh, and they found a pig. They found a pig. What's that? What's that doing in Jerusalem? Are they eating pigs in Jerusalem? The Bible says you shouldn't eat pigs. The Bible must be wrong. Now, Christopher Eames has a piece about this in the in Watch Jerusalem or on Watch Jerusalem. It's about to be published perhaps tomorrow or the day after. It's entitled Piglet Found in First Temple Period Jerusalem. Subtitled Evidence Against the Existence of Kosher Laws, hardly rather a fascinating parallel to a contemporary biblical pa- Bible passage. Now, that's a refreshing way of looking at these discoveries. Uh, we, uh, you know, we don't hide our bias. Our bias is, yes, the Bible is an accurate historical source. But then you excavate. You put that aside and you excavate and you discover what you discover. And then you have the dating of what you've discovered, and you have the stuff that you discovered, and then you look in the Bible and you find a, a period of, of the similar geography of a similar date, of a similar place, and you, you weigh the two. Is what I find, is what I found, does that match? Or doesn't it match? Don't just think you know what the Bible says based on your preconceived notions, your preconceived ideas, but that's the way things work these days. It seems, especially based in the media reporting of it, this is how Chris starts his article. Anyhow, during recent excavations in Jerusalem, city of David, a rather cute, but of course, non-kosher small pig was discovered. The skeleton was found complete, but crushed by vessels and part of a wall, the result of an ancient building which housed it collapsing. The excavations led by Joe Uziel of the Israeli Antiquities Authority took place near the Gihon Spring in what was apparently an apparently wealthy four-room Jerusalem building. Together with young, pit, the, with young pig were the remains of several other animals, such as cattle, sheep, goats, birds, and fish. These bones, however, showed cut marks and burning. Evidence of the location, the location was used for butchering food. The archaeologists believed that the pig likewise was destined for the pot, but before then was crushed alive during some kind of incident, perhaps an earthquake. Uh, and then he says more of this further down. The shape of the skull indicated that it was a domestic pig. And the remains date uh, to, the, to the 8th century BCE. 
And so, of course, you had some people coming out saying, well, kosher laws didn't exist then. That's why we find pig. Um, we're not going to dwell on that too much. I am going to, though, talk about this one scripture from the Bible, from the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Here we have Isaiah 65 and verse uh, 2, verse 4, and, and chapter 66 and verse 17. Right at the end, this is what, uh, right at the end of the book of Isaiah. And so this is your contemporary history written in the biblical text of what you should find in Jerusalem. Does the Bible talk about eating habits during the 8th century in Jerusalem? Well, yes, it does. The prophet Isaiah talks about it. This is what he says. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. I have, or at least quoting the book of Isaiah, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people that eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Then going on to the other scripture, chapter 66 and verse 17, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go unto the gardens behind one in the midst eating swine's flesh and the detestable thing, and the mouth shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. So the prophet Isaiah, right when this pig was, was said to be, was, was found, or at least the period in which it was from, he indicates that people were eating swine's flesh, and this was a bad thing. They were being rebellious, and they shouldn't have been doing it. So does it prove the Bible was wrong? Actually, it doesn't. It lines up perfectly with the Bible. Here's another story that came out this this week. Oh, this was actually two weeks ago. This is about the eastern fortification wall of the ancient city of David, which was the ancient part of Jerusalem. Uh, even during the 8th century, 7th century, when they've dated this wall from, or probably the 8th century, I think it is, um, around 800, <clears throat> or around the 8th century, I believe is, yeah, we'll just, I'll just read part of it. Um this the, the the ancient part of Jerusalem was in the south here surrounding the Gihon Spring and going up onto to Mount Moriah uh, where the temple <clears throat> and the Ophel area where the temple was. This is what Chris writes again. This was published uh, last on July 14th, so two weeks ago now. Archaeologists working on the eastern slopes of the city of David had uncovered a significant stretch of Jerusalem's first temple period fortification wall that stood at the beginning stood at the time, sorry, of the Babylonian invasion in the 6th century BCE. The imposing Kidron Valley was, wall was revealed to a length of roughly 40 meters, a preserved height of up to 3 meters, and a width of 5 meters. This is a big, fat city wall. It's probably, obviously, far higher than this, um, but this is the remaining portion, 5 meters wide. That's quite, um, quite amazing. Uh, how wide the city wall is. This length of wall fills the gap between two separate sections of the same eastern fortification line that had already been excavated decades prior, a northern length discovered in the 60s by Dame Kathleen Kenyon and a southern, southern section uncovered a decade later by Professor Yigashilo. The new discovery allows the impressive tracing of nearly 200 meters of fortification wall along the city eastern side of the city of David. And so this is a really impressive discovery of a 2,800, 2,700 around this time period in there, give or take, it seems, um, late eighth, uh, yeah, in this period of a, the city wall of Jerusalem, the eastern city wall of Jerusalem. Right now I'm going to play a video. It's just about two minutes 
long, and so you can see the archaeologists themselves uh, and some footage of these discoveries from this recent excavation. Here's the video from the Israeli Antiquities Authority. We are standing here on the eastern slopes of the City of David National Park, where recent excavations conducted by the Israel Antiquities Authority have revealed an additional portion of the first temple period fortification of the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. The Babylonians arrive here in 586 BC and destroy the city of Jerusalem and the first temple. Remains of this destruction were uncovered here in recent excavations of a building just inside the wall. However, they did not destroy this segment of the wall, which remains standing till today, waiting for us archaeologists to come and expose it. We found two sections of this wall, which connects beautifully to another section found just a few meters north from here, and another section found south from here. And now we can reconstruct 200 meters of this city wall that surrounded the eastern slope of the city of David and Jerusalem. During the excavation, we found a number of very important items which testify to daily life of ancient Jerusalem and the city of David. We found a bulla. On the bulla, is inscribed name Tzafan, Babylonian stamp seal, something really particular for the Babylonian time period. We found a number of storage jar handles which were stamped either with lamelech, belonging to the king, stamp or with concentric circles or with rosettas. These teach us about Judean bureaucracy, administration from sometime in the 8th century BC until the Babylonian destruction. We can really learn a lot about daily lives in ancient Jerusalem right before Babylonians arrived and destroyed the city on the 9th of August. So this, this city wall, as you saw there, is, is an important discovery in Jerusalem, and it's an important, important discovery that really is going to help us know where the boundary was of the eastern city, uh, eastern city wall. Uh, during this during this period, two thousand eight hundred years ago, and again we can we can look at this wall and 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 look what the Bible says about it. And Chris does a good job of this because you are going to see, as we'll get to, some reporting that comes out and says that well they found the city wall from the Babylonian period, and the Bible says the city wall is destroyed. The Bible is wrong. Again, that's the reporting that comes out on on a wonderful discovery like this. Uh, we'll get to that. First, what Chris says about the archaeological context and what the Bible says about the city walls of Jerusalem from this period. And I'll leave a link to this in the show notes today. The archaeologists are yet to secure a definite date for the construction of the defensive wall, but state that it was probably constructed around the late 8th, early century BCE. This would fit, fit well with the biblical account which describes much of the wall of Jerusalem being broken down during an invasion from the northern kingdom of Israel around 800 BCE, and you can see that in 2 Kings 14 and verse 13, followed by a late 8th century refortification of, quote, the wall that was broken down by Hezekiah. Hezekiah ruling Jerusalem around <clears throat> the, the changeover from the 8th century into the 7th century by Hezekiah in preparation for the Assyrian siege. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 5, and, and Hezekiah, you'll remember at that time, he was facing the mighty Assyrian Empire in Sennacherib, 
<clears throat> uh, the king of Assyria coming in, taking over territory, uh, taking over Lachish, the second biggest city, and and, bur- and coming down towards Jerusalem, up towards Jerusalem, wanting to just wipe out the, the Jewish nation at that time. And it talks about how Hezekiah actually had to break down some of the houses to get the stones from inside the city of the houses and then refortify and, and build this build a massive wall. Perhaps this is the wall that they're discovering um, uh, here in this in this uh, that was reported on this week in the in the eastern part of the city of David. Later, during the early seventh century, Hezekiah's son Manasseh is described building a wall deep in the Kidron Valley in this very area. And so we don't know exactly which wall this was. It is the eastern city wall. Perhaps there's another one uh, as well. <clears throat> but the Bible does describe around this period too, uh, or at least two periods of construction on a city wall. This newly discovered southeastern fortification line remained standing then following the Babylonian destruction. This has already been highlighted in the media as a potential contradiction to the biblical account. And that's how it was reported in the Times of Israel. I mean, you have a really amazing discovery here. A large 200 meters now of the eastern city wall of, the, of, the, of ancient Jerusalem from 2,800 years ago. That's amazing. And that's a tremendous uh, discovery. And that should be matched with the biblical text, as we've said to try and enlighten us of who built it or, or why they built it, what was the scenario surrounding its construction. And yet, what does the Times of Israel lead with? This is the very lead of their... That's not enough. The amazing accounts of this, this construction, or at least the discovery of this wall, that's not enough. This is how Times of Israel leads. First Temple-era walls raised in biblical account found unbreached in Jerusalem. Subtitled, Missing Section of 8th to 7th Century BCE Fortification puts in question narrative of Second Kings in which conquering Babylonians tore down Jerusalem's walls on every side. And so, because they find a section of wall around Jerusalem, which was pretty big at the time that the Babylonians took it, just because they find a section of wall that wasn't torn down all the way down to bedrock, the Bible is wrong. The Babylonians didn't uh, tear down the walls of Jerusalem, or at least the scripture is wrong. This is how it starts. Again, this is the start. I mean, if you want to include some of this right at the end, go ahead, fine. But why start out saying that this discovery disproves the Bible on a incorrect, wrong interpretation of what the Bible actually says? It's, it's a little aggravating. <laughs> In a potential contradiction of the biblical account of, of the 586 BC destruction of Jerusalem, continuing excavations in Jerusalem City of David National Park have revealed a previously unseen section of the First Temple period fortification wall that was breached, but apparently not entirely raised by the Babylonians. According to 2 Kings 25 verse 10, the entire Chaldean or Babylonian force that was with the chief of the guard tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. But this newly found extent section of the eastern city wall connected to two previously excavated and documented sections means that potentially the entire length of the eastern border was not in fact told, tore down by the conquering Babylonians. Ah, this is how Chris uh, deals with that. Um, the wall discovery is hardly contradictory, however. The Hebrew text doesn't state 
It doesn't state that every single wall was torn down all the way to bedrock. The scriptures indicate that there were several large fortification lines around Jerusalem. The single Hebrew word translated as every side means around or roundabout. The passage in 2 Kings 25 could equally be translated, tore down walls around Jerusalem. Okay, did the Babylonians do that? Yeah, we find evidence of it. We find destruction of it everywhere. We find walls that are only three meters high. The eastern city wall of Jerusalem, only three meters high. Are you kidding me? It would be far higher than that when the Babylonians tried to conquer it. Um, then Chris writes, and as, as the archaeological excavations in Jerusalem have revealed, this tearing down is a, especially apparent on the eastern, uh, on the western side of the city. Of course, it is. It'd be more apparent where they where they came through, where they breached, where they took it down. Um, the easier parts, the eastern the eastern side of the city of David, it's very steep, and so it wouldn't make sense for the Babylonians to spend all their time. Um, once they've already breached the city, once they're in there, once they've conquered, to spend the time on that part, uh, destroying that part of the wall. And so you do have a couple of, uh, a couple of, I would say, really cool discoveries in Jerusalem revealed to the public over the past couple of weeks. And reporting of it has to throw in a bias, an anti-Bible bias. And if there is a need for Watch Jerusalem and for this podcast and our magazine, well, the Watch Jerusalem magazine, we see evidence of it every time there's a biblical discovery, a biblical period discovery here in Israel, because the reporting is, is often horrendous. It's often trying to find or trying to show how this discovery disproves the Bible, and it's based entirely on an incorrect uh, bias or an incorrect understanding of what the Bible actually says. Again, all these people should spend a little bit more time in the Bible, in the Bible, with your noses in the Bible. You'll have a lot of people that will come out and say, oh, this archaeologist uses the Bible. They need to get their nose out of the Bible and back into the dirt. I disagree. I disagree completely. And reporting, the false reporting that we see regarding these discoveries shows that people need to spend a little bit more time discovering what the Bible actually says, read through the scriptures, don't bring it, don't bring in your own bias into what the Bible actually says, take it at face value. And then you have a good starting point. Then you can make an accurate comparison. Yes or no. Don't come into it from your incorrect uh, or based on a biased as understanding of what the Bible says. I will mention our magazine. Again, this is a free magazine, Watch Jerusalem. It comes out uh, six times a year, we're currently preparing our tribute issue to Dr. Elat Mazar, and that should be coming out in a week or so. Uh, and you can receive this wherever you are in the world, free, free of charge. And so this is something that you'll want to get your hands on if you don't, if you're not a subscriber yet. Just one more story here. This is from uh, on the ASOR website. This is one of the big uh, institutions for biblical archaeology, although they wouldn't call it biblical archaeology. They don't even call it Oriental archaeology. Uh, anymore, or it used to be called the associate, uh, the association. Well, I'm not even going to attempt to. They've changed their name. It's still ASOR, but the acronym doesn't mean what it used to. They've taken out the word Oriental because that is not politically correct, apparently. So here is an article, and it's talking about this period that the Bible uh, describes really in detail, which in three separate accounts, in extreme detail, that the Bible rarely gives. 
uh, to, to a biblical account. I'm talking about the destruction or the lack of destruction of Jerusalem during the time that Sennacherib was trying to conquer it during the kingship of Hezekiah and the prophet uh, during the time of the prophet Isaiah. And, and what's interesting about this is this is somebody writing for Asor, and they're going to, they do a study where they have come across in 2002, a journalist wrote his own theory based on a lot of good sources about how and why Sennacherib's army fled Jerusalem. Now, if you remember this scene, every city in Jerusalem, in, in Israel, in Judah is basically wiped out by the Assyrians. Mighty Sennacherib is there. He's coming. He wants to come and wipe out Jerusalem. Hezekiah is there in Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet is there in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah repents. Uh, he turns to Isaiah. He turns to God and he, he spreads the the, um, the, 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 the letter from Sennacherib, he takes to the temple, spreads it out before God and says, this, this, this mighty king wants to destroy Jerusalem, uh, but God, please defend your city. And God returns from the prophet Isaiah and says, I will defend this city. I will defend it for David, my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city of that I have chosen. And so you've got hundred and almost 200,000 Assyrian forces that are going to amass on the borders of Jerusalem, close to it, and they're going to turn, well, then at least what the Bible, the, what the Bible says is that an angel put him to death. A few, a few L's probably went back with Sennacherib back to, back to Assyria. That's what happened. That's what the Bible says in three separate accounts. The Bible's very clear on that. And yet, of course, the, that can't happen. We don't live in an age or that there's, there's no such thing as, as miraculous events. There's no such thing as a spiritual realm of a God intervening uh, like this in human affairs. It just doesn't happen. So what happened? Why did Sennacherib's army flee, apparently? Why did he go back? Why didn't he take Jerusalem? Well, it's been, this has been a, a thing that has intrigued scholars for uh, a long, 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 long time. And it still does. So I'm just going to quote from this now. I'll leave, a sh I'll leave a, a link in the show notes. It says here, The failure of Assyria, the era's only superpower, superpower to seize Jerusalem, capital of Judah, is one of history's great turning points. Sennacherib had already captured all other significant Judaite loca localities and began deporting survivors toward distant parts of the empire. As the invaders advanced towards the sole remaining city, Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah, resident, a resident predicted doom. Indeed, Judah seemed poised to meet the same catastrophic fate that of the king, the other. Well, that's not what he did. He didn't predict doom. <laughs> he said it would be if he didn't repent and change and look to me, as in meaning look to God. Indeed, Judah seemed poised to meet the same catastrophic fate that the other Hebrew kingdom, Israel, had suffered 19 uh, 19 years earlier, Assyria's destroy and deport strategy had then effectively extinguished Hebrew society and culture from what what had been the more populous of the two Hebrew states. Anyway, it talks about what would have happened if Assyria, which it does, which is amazing, what, to think about what would have happened had Assyria taken the Jews into captivity at that time. The world would be a different place if that is the case. 
skipping a paragraph, as if to as if to reflect the event's importance, the Bible tells of Jerusalem's deliverance three times in Second Kings eighteen and nineteen, Isaiah thirty six thirty seven, and Second Chronicles thirty two. No other biblical story receives such repeated exposition. Each narrative explains the climax similarly. The angel of the Lord slew most. Uh, the Lord slew most Assyrian troops as they slept in their camp, and the survivors straggled, uh, straggled home. Scholars, skipping a paragraph again, have long sought to discern the historical cause behind what the biblical authors explain supernaturally. However, no conclusive evidence exists. One theory is that an epidemic level of in, uh, uh, sorry, an epidemic leveled the invaders. Another is a crisis elsewhere in the empire caused Sennacherib to depart. A third suggests Judah's king Hezekiah simply surrendered, causing Sennacherib uh, to spare the city and him. Another rescue of Jerusalem pokes holes. This this new this other theory pokes holes in each of those theories. Then proposes that an army led by Taharko, a Cushite royal played a key role in causing Sennacherib to retreat. And so he talks about why. Actually, a new theory. Actually, it was an invading army from the south, from, from, from Egypt way, caused Sennacherib to run home. That is the real reason. And so they're going to analyze this reason. She, he, this, this author put out, uh, I think this was the Journal of Hebrew Scriptures, commissioned eight scholars to go ahead and analyze this new theory. Analyze this new theory that that Sennacherib's retreat was actually caused by an invading uh, army from Africa or Egypt. And then it seems like they get back to and they write their their critiques. And based on their critiques, this is what what she she writes. This is Alice Ogden Ballas, professor of Old Testament language and literature at Howard University School of Divinity. She's the one writing this article. It is significant that none of the contributors, meaning these scholars that were looking at this new theory, including the most negative, contests any of the six arguments supporting the theory. The final score means is one thumbs down, like, nah, it couldn't have happened. One fence setter, six thumbs up. It could have been. It could have been the reason. After millennia of obscurity, perhaps Tar Heko's army will finally get more attention thanks to a perspective from outside academia. And so here is one of the leading institutes for archaeology in the land of the Bible during the period of the Bible. And the biblical account involving a miracle of God attested to in three separate passages. That's obviously false. That couldn't have happened. So let's throw out all these theories, bring up all these other theories of what really happened. What really happened? Because we we don't have a fitting, every theory has a hole. Every theory has its problems. And so here you have somebody very excited about this this study. And they just happen to be a professor of Old Testament language and literature at the Howard School of Divinity. I'm wondering whether, like, the students at the Howard School, University School of Divinity, are going there to have one of their professors basically just discard out of hand and make it implausible in fact impossible that the bible is actually accurate that the bible describes that a miracle took place that god intervened to save jerusalem and to to save save the jewish people at that time based on hezekiah's repentance and turning to isaiah 
I mean, the fact that this was written by and put together by somebody at a, a religious institution um, is not surprising, is not surprising. Although it does show you again where we are, where we are, that there, there are few voices out there in academia that are willing to acknowledge, um, let's say, the presence of God or the fact that God would intervene in human affairs of a spirit realm, even, um, that God is capable of miracles. She probably believes, this person, that God can move uh, move human beings' minds to then come and cause this 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 army to vacate, uh, and then the biblical authors are just going to make something up, I suppose. Again, we have the most amazing corroborated event in the Bible is the failed campaign of Sennacherib to take Jerusalem. And it's provable in Assyrian documents, maybe Lachish wall reliefs that show Lachish being taken. Uh, you have the Sennacherib prison, prism, sorry, written three different times, Taylor prism and, and the Oriental prism, I think it's called, perhaps, that details that Hezekiah was caged up like a bird, meaning that Jerusalem wasn't conquered. So you have all this that matches perfectly with the biblical text. And then the Bible comes along and says, Snacherib's army was destroyed by an angel of God. No, that can't happen, according to the scholars out there. What would God have to do to prove his existence to some of these people when the archaeological record uh, so clearly supports that biblical story, really more than any other biblical story? And we had a, a, uh, an exhibit that was based on this biblical story. It was called The Seals of Isaiah and King Hezekiah Discovered. This is a, 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 a exhibit, that archaeological exhibit that we did back in 2018. We had the seal of King Hezekiah. That's been discovered in Jerusalem in 2015. It was released to the public here on the Ophel. And we have the Isaiah Bulla. There's a couple of letters that have been missing because Isaiah's thumbprint got them. But the most logical reading of this bullet is Isaiah, the prophet. That's what it, sh- that's what it says. And we put together a, a, an amazing, I think it's an amazing exhibit, putting all this secular archaeological proof of this event together and put it alongside with the biblical narrative and showed the artifacts um, that are related to this period from Lachish, from uh, from Jerusalem, meaning these still impressions. We had arrowheads from Lachish, but we don't have them from Jerusalem from this period. Why not? Because the Bible says that Sennacherib would not fire one arrow against the city during this time. Lachish, yes, lots of arrowheads. Jerusalem, no, no arrowheads. Again, another corroboration of the biblical account. Now, I want to offer you this uh, very beautiful um, brochure, and it goes, it's basically all the text uh, from, the, uh, from the exhibit itself, uh, pictures of the artifacts that were in there as well, the seal impressions, uh, maps. Um, it's just really wonderful. It gives you the secular account of it, and it puts it alongside the Bible, and you can receive this for free.
Again, wherever you are in the world, I have a bunch of copies right here. You can go ahead to watchjerusalem.co.il and order yourself a copy of this. Uh, just say, just go, uh, it, it's got it up there, sealing, seals of Isaiah and King Hezekiah discovered. You just hit the literature tab in the top right hand of the, the website and you can find this. Or you can simply write an email to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Letters at watchjerusalem.co. Uh, .il and just say, please send me, please send me the brochure about the true account of archaeology and the Bible relating to King Hezekiah and Sennacherib's army being vanquished. And if you are somebody that would take archaeology and the Bible at face value and you are tired of reading accounts like we find in, in Asor like this that would just disregard the biblical narrative as out of hand, then you will really enjoy this exhibit brochure. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening. Please do send your feedback to our email address, letters at watchjerusalem.co.il, and I'll respond as as I can. Also, you can send some tips, archaeological uh, tips of discoveries that have been made or items you might want covered on this program. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.